0: come on, it's going to be a good night. Hey, before I get into my uh, remarks that I want to share tonight, we're, we're a little off script uh, tonight. We're going to talk about about why that is, but let me just let me just take just a moment to talk a little bit about, too, uh, about just this this time of year for us as a church is, is a time where we really talk about missions and what we're doing, uh, not just locally, but also around the world, and so uh, if if you came in, if you haven't gotten one of these brochures yet, you want to make sure that you pick up one of these. Uh, this just goes into great detail. It just folds out. It talks about different organizations that we support. It talks about countries uh, where we're active or sometimes countries where we're where, where We're projecting that we're going to be active in uh, in the coming year. And so if you've got questions about anything that you see on here, uh, please feel free to let us know. We'd love to talk to you about this. Uh, we usually take a trip to the Dominican Republic every year. I think this one is scheduled for the summer uh, to a village that we have adopted through Food for the Hungry. We have, we have a 10-year commitment that we're about two, two-thirds of the way through, and uh, and so all of our mission's money goes to support groups like this, missionaries like this, tr- uh, teams like this, trips like this. 100% of all the money that comes in for mission goes right back out the door. Not one penny of it stays in. Every dollar goes back out, whether locally or abroad, and the way that that works is that there's a missions giving card that we hand out every year. Do not put your name on this because it's not a pledge. It's not a pledge drive. Nobody's going to follow up with you. Uh, this is just what we use to help formulate a budget so that we can make sure that we're being responsible with the missionaries that we take on because they depend on those money. So we want to make sure that we're being good stewards uh, with the commitments that we make. But you're going to see that there's going to be two places there uh, for you to fill out. We're going to be taking these up next week, right? Yeah. But next, next week we're going to be collecting these. So please come ready with your card. Uh, the first one is a monthly commitment that's what you're going to put as you look at your budget find some space in your discretionary income that you're going to carve out a little bit if everybody does something it creates an awfully big budget you tracking with me? It's the collective giving of lots of people that makes it. But you might say, well, I can't be that person that makes a big gift. Can I just tell you, a few big gifts is a lot less than everybody doing a little something. And so everybody, as a family, sit down and talk about what you can do, even if it's just a little bit every month. Get that number in there and then you're committing to give that every month. The the second one is called a faith promise. Now that's a little bit unique if if you're not familiar with that concept. We've been doing it probably for more than 10 years here as a church. Probably more than $30,000 comes in every year just through faith promise alone. That's where you pray. God's going to give you a number. You don't know where that money's going to come from, but you're believing by faith that he's going to provide it, and you make a promise that when he does, you're going to give it to the Faith Promise Fund. That all goes in the missions fund, and all of that money goes back out, 100% of it. None of it stays... Here with the church I can't tell you how many times in our life, Vanessa and I've been married. Uh, for, it'll be 22 years this May. The church that I came from uh, was active with faith promise. We've been doing faith promise together as a married couple for 22 years. And, and the stories that we have to tell, and if you've been a part of this church, freedom of time, you've got stories to tell. I, I, so many times there's something it comes even right at the end of the year. I remember when we were newly married. Our faith promise hadn't come in yet, and in December, we got a letter from the mortgage company saying that they had taken out too much money uh, in our, uh, for our escrow, for our property tax, and there was a refund check, and it was almost to the penny, what our faith promise was. I'm telling you, if, if you'll pray, God's going to give you a number, and then you stand in faith, and you believe, and then when he provides it, you make a decision. And you got to make the promise on the front end, because when the check comes in, there's, you're always going to find a reason to spend it. You're tracking with me? That's why we call it a faith promise, not just a faith, right? Because if it's just a faith and God gives it to you, then guess what? You're probably going to go out and buy that TV that you saw on the back wall. Is Adam in here? I was texting Adam, who works at Best Buy the other day, and I was there for something else. And he said, don't go to the back wall. You're going to end up spending money you don't have. I said, brother, you are right, because I'm standing here right now, and you just called me away from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the back That's what they should, there should just be an emblem of a big tree with Adam and Eve on the back wall of Best Buy. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But we're off script tonight a little bit. When I woke up this morning, I I figured we were heading this way. I I wasn't certain, but I I just had that sense deep in my heart. And uh, with everything that's been going on in the Commonwealth over the last couple of weeks with the abortion bill and then with what's happened with the governor, Uh, so you're either going to leave here really excited about the City Life Church tonight. Or, uh, or you're going to leave here going, dear God, what did I just sit through? The truth always prunes. and always prunes. And pruning is always good. It doesn't always feel good in the moment, but if we're not willing to let the truth of God's word prune us, then we will never grow. We will never grow as individuals, and we will never grow as a church and a community collectively. Can I just tell you too, if the church is not willing to be pruned by the truth of God's word, then you do not have the moral authority to go out into the world and speak to it about where it needs to be pruned. It always starts within. We're going to come back to a time of worship and prayer Uh, at the end of the service. Communion is going to be embedded in that, because I want to share some things that I feel like God has put on my heart uh, this afternoon, and then I think there's just a real opportunity for us to come as a church and pray for our, our commonwealth and to pray for our nation. Second Chronicles 7.14, you've heard it before. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will hear the, heal their land. It's interesting is that the call to prayer is for the people of God, but the healing is for all people who are in the land. It, it, doesn't say, it doesn't say that when the people of God stand and pray, right? And, and the people of God, right, they've got to turn from their wicked ways because we've all got wicked ways ourselves. God's, God promises there's a healing for the land, but it's not just for the people of God, it's for everybody that's in the land because the people of God are always supposed to stand in a place of intercession, and we're going to stand in that place of intercession tonight. Acts 15. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Acts 15. The Holy Spirit series that keeps getting put on pause, which I know makes us all theologically uncomfortable just to even say that, but there's somebody that God wants to hear those last two messages that keeps deciding not to come to church, so whoever that person is, he's waiting for them. Acts 15, love this chapter in the Bible. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told him much to everyone's joy that the Gentiles too were being converted. Gentile is a biblical term for everyone in the world who's not Jewish. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised as required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows, Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so they could hear the good news and believe. Right? We know that Peter was the first person chosen by God to give the first sermon of the early church as it was being birthed in Acts chapter 2. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Peter's implication here, that the Holy Spirit was given to non-Jewish people before they even considered the possibility of, of having to walk in obedience to the Mosaic law. He made no distinction, Peter says, between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Now everyone listen quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles because they had already begun their mission's work. So they had been traveling around the Mediterranean world. They had stories to tell. When they had finished, James stood and said, this is James, the brother of Christ. Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself, And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted as it is written. Verse 16, Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. So that the rest of humanity, right? The rest of humanity means the whole world, both Jew and Gentile alike. The rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. Verse 19. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. Now that's another sermon for another time to explain why he picked that list. But I'm going to give that list a label in just a minute. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues and every city, on every Sabbath, from generations. Now let's talk about what was happening in the early church. When the church was birthed 2,000 years ago in the first century, one of its greatest struggles was racial tension. It was racial tension. Because the Jewish people had a sense of ethnic superiority over the rest of the world. And so, when Jesus came through the Jewish nation and revealed to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, there were some people of the Jewish community who followed along as Christ being the Messiah, but they carried with them this sense of ethnic superiority as they began to establish themselves in the church. This is why there was a group of people that traveled up to Antioch out of Jerusalem because they were afraid that this self-imposed privilege that they had of themselves, this ethnic superiority, that it was being lost because Gentiles were now being invited into the church and were not being challenged to embrace and accept Jewish culture. Now there's no question that Jewish people hold a special place in the heart of God. I'm not saying that he doesn't. This church firmly, firmly believes that the nation of Israel and the Jewish people hold a special role in the world and at the end of the world that is unlike any other people. They are special to God. We cannot deny that. But being special and superior are two different things. And what the text is dealing with here is don't mistake being special with being superior. And make sure that you distinguish between what God defines as universal morality and cultural practice. There is, in these few verses, a formula. I believe that God intends to be put to work within the local church even today so that the diversity that he intended can come to fruition. Verse 19, I'm going to read it again. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult. If you believe that the Bible is divinely inspired, which we do, then you know James here isn't just saying my judgment for him. This is God saying this is his judgment for all of mankind. So my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. What does that mean? It means that God has a mandate for the church. There is a mandate for the people of God that the people of God should not have built-in barriers in their belief systems that make it hard for people that are different from them to enter in and become a part of who they are. He's saying, don't make it hard. We have a tendency to make it hard, don't we? Because we want unity through uniformity, because unity through diversity requires harmony, and that's a little bit more of a difficult path. These words are for us today. Don't make it difficult for the Gentiles. I think sometimes that we we don't understand the challenge of diversity the Bible's speaking to because when it says Jew and Gentile, we, we're just thinking of two groups of people. But it's not. It's one group of people and then every other group of people. Gentile means the rest of the world. It means every nation, every culture. When he says my judgment, it, 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 should, it should not make it difficult for Gentiles. He's saying it, we should not make it difficult for people who are culturally and ethnically different than we are. Don't make it hard for them to come and be a part of the family of God. And then he gives us the formula for how we execute that plan. It's a short list, is it not? I'm just saying. If you were in the meeting that came up with that list, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be one of those people that says, excuse me, I think this this, this list is just, it's too short. If, if we're going to list some universal moralities, could 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 maybe we make this list a little bit longer? It makes me uncomfortable that we're just giving them just a handful of things. I think there's a reason why that we're just given a handful of things. It's not because God doesn't think that there are a lot of other items that should be considered universal moralities. That's why the Bible keeps going. It doesn't stop at Acts chapter 15. He's introducing to us a category of concept. And the category of concept is that of universal morality. He's saying there are moral issues that are universal for all people and they are timeless, meaning it is for all time. And then the rest of Scripture adds to that list. It's a short list, not because God only cares about a few things. It's a short list because he's teaching a concept. He's teaching the idea of universal morality. And the reason why the Holy Spirit is inspiring James here in his delivery, in his edict, in his declaration that was in turn remembered by Luke, who is the person who gave us the gospel of Luke, who is the instrument of the Holy Spirit in writing the book of Acts, who records this for us, is because the Holy Spirit wants the world to understand and to know that when there is moral clarity and moral consistency, you create an environment for cultural diversity. The way that a church eliminates the barriers that stand in the way for the cultural diversity that the church is supposed to be and represent is to be committed and diligent in its application of moral demands. And when we are unclear... And when we are inconsistent, guess what happens? We create an environment that makes it uncomfortable for other people. The world is not leaving the church because the church is morally compromised. The world is leaving the church because it's morally inconsistent and how it applies universal morality. It applies it heavily here. And it turns a blind eye over there. And then people say, I don't want to be a part of that. Guess what? I don't want to be a part of that either. Moral consistency, moral clarity will give birth to cultural diversity. If there is going to be unity in the community of the local church... Then it's because all people are gonna feel comfortable being present. And what makes them safe because people are not opposed to being challenged. People are not opposed to being corrected. Can we just agree that something deep down inside of us wants there to be a standard of truth that exists in the universe that we're gonna be held to, even it's at our own expense? Because something inside of us longs for righteousness. It's how we were created. Deep inside, there's something inside of us that wants to get back to what Adam and Eve lost. But we don't trust an institution that is unclear and inconsistent, and we shouldn't. We want the City Life Church to be a place where there is moral clarity and moral consistency so that we can look like the church that God dreamed of when he made it. We say all the time that we wanna look like the city that we're in. Can we just also add to that tonight? We wanna look like the heaven that we're headed for. When we read the description of heaven, it is a place of every tribe and every nation and every tongue. So let's not just be a church that looks like our city, let's be a church that looks like eternity. And we are not gonna look like a church that looks like eternity unless we have moral clarity And moral consistency. Here it comes. Got my pruning shears out. Clip, clip, clip. If you proclaim to be pro-life, and I do, and we are as a church, you cannot just be a proponent of legislation that restricts abortion. You cannot. If you are going to use the term pro life, then make sure that you're just as passionate about legislation that restricts abortion as you are about legislation that advances social justice. If you declare to be pro life, but you're only passionate about the unborn, then you're leaving out those who are born. And to be biblically pro-life means that you've got to advocate for both the unborn and the born. If you take abortion outside of the context of social justice, then you have stepped into a realm of moral inconsistency and a lack of moral clarity because God in this book does not separate the two. If you want to read about why God brought judgment to the nation of Israel so often in the Old Testament, spend some time in the minor prophets. They're not minor because they weren't important. They're minor because their books are shorter. Start in Malachi and just work your way backwards. Spend a little extra time in the book of Amos. Yeah, the book of Amos. You want to talk about some righteous indignation that God speaks to the world? And can I just tell you the two most recurring themes in the minor prophets that speak to why God brought judgment to the nation of Israel were idolatry? And you know what the second one was? Social injustice. Those are the top two. Read it for yourself. Read it for yourself. And whenever he talks about social injustice, you know what he talks about? He talks about corruption in the courts. He talks about the oppression of the poor. He talks about people who don't have a voice being ignored. He talks about the loss of the life of the innocents. Yes, that's in there, but it's part of a bigger list. And for too long, the church has taken the topic of abortion, which is egregious, which is horrific which is moral slot and moral decay in our nation, but we've taken it outside of the context in which it existed because so many of the other things on that list might make us uncomfortable, or worse, they're not things that touch us. Pro-life. The born and the unborn. We're passionate about both of those here. If the list of some of the things that we talk about here as a church, when we talk about universal morality is part of your story, we don't talk about these things to condemn you or to shame you, that's not who we are as a church. We're gonna love you through your journey of healing. All of us have a story, I have a story. I'm open about the ugliness of my past. I didn't make a vow of devotion to Christ until I was 23. You know what that means? I had a lot of time to do a lot of really rotten things. Been having a conversation with a dear friend on Facebook just today. We were fraternity brothers together. We're really nice to each other on Facebook because we have a lot of stories about each other. (laughs) There's a lot of kindness that's exchanged. Because whoever takes the first step, it's going to be bad. We're all sinners saved by grace. But we're not all morally corrupt. If you're a devoted follower of Christ, you're a sinner saved by grace. But you should not be morally corrupt. You should not be morally corrupt. If you're an advocate for pro life just for the unborn, but not the born, at best, it's inconsistent. At worst, it's hypocrisy. And it is the building bricks and the wall of the church that makes it uniform instead of diverse because you're making it hard for other people to come in and be a part. Let's not be that church. Let's not be that place. Now, I'm going to talk to you just as Fred right now, not as Pastor Fred. And that is the senior pastor of this church. And you might say, well, you can't separate those two. And I would say, yes, I can. (laughs) And I have a biblical basis for it. Because there's a few times in Scripture where Paul says, am I right? Where Paul says, I'm not writing to you anymore on behalf of God. These are just my thoughts and my ideas. So I'm in good standing here. Just saying. These are my personal beliefs. When that bill was presented in this commonwealth for late-term abortion and the governor came out in support of that, I believe, this is my belief, I believe that he put himself directly in the path of the judgment of God. And what we're seeing happening right now, his political undoing, is because he supported that bill and God said enough is enough. That's what I believe. You don't have to believe that. You don't have to agree with it. I'm okay with that. We love hearty conversation here, but that's what I believe. I believe that there are times where God says enough is enough. Now, why does he say it for this person and not for that person? I don't know. You're going to have to take that up with God. Why does there seem to be more grace for one and not the other? I don't know the answer to that question, but I firmly believe that what he's experiencing right now is his undoing because of his public support of that bill. I do. I do. And I don't believe that he's going to recover. We're going to pray for him. We're going to pray for him tonight. Because Second Chronicles 7.14 didn't leave anybody out. We're called to stand and to intercede for our nation, for our commonwealth, and for our communities. But we are also called to stand and give voice to truth, even truth that cuts. See, truth prunes, but it doesn't have to divide. Because when it's really truth and when it really prunes, it actually draws us together, even if we don't agree. Because diversity never comes into complete agreement because now you've jumped into the world of uniformity. But the Bible doesn't call for uniformity, it calls for harmony, which means that we're not going to ultimately agree about everything. We're just not. And God says that's okay, as long as there's mutual respect and love and devotion for one another Matthew 15. Verse 21. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. Now we can all just agree she's in a crisis. Right? I mean, this is serious business. The region of Tyre and Sidon has a unique place in the history of Israel because that's the home place of what is arguably the most wicked queen in history, whose name is Jezebel. You know you're wicked when your name becomes synonymous with wickedness for everyone outside of even Christian circles, right? Right? I mean, Benedict Arnold, you don't have to be a history major to understand what his name stands for. When we hear the word Jezebel, if somebody refers to you as a Jezebel, there's nothing inside of you that says, I wonder if that was a compliment. (laughs) We know what it means, people. This is where she's from. There is intense hatred and the people of Israel. For the people that live in this land, because they associate them with this lady and the death and destruction and the havoc that she wreaked upon this nation. This woman is one of them. Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him Jesus, this woman is in a crisis. We need to help her. No, that's not what it says. What does it say? The disciples urged him to send her away. Because you know what they're thinking. Yeah, that's right. We don't care about you, your people, what you did to us. Your daughter deserves to die. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all this begging. Are you kidding me? These are the people that Jesus picked to give birth to the church? Yeah, hope for us. (laughs) And Jesus appears to be in the middle of it. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was, sent to only, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. Because we're superior. Because we matter in a way that you don't. What in the world? You're like, I didn't even know this was in the Bible. I know, well you should read it more often. <laughs> she became offended, cursed him, stormed off. No, that's not what it says. That's what I would have done. She came and worshiped him. What? Pleaded again, Lord, help me. Jesus said, all right. No, no, no. Well, it gets worse, people. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Now, you might say, Well, he didn't really call her a dog, and what I would say to you, if you're the recipient of this story, you might have a different opinion of what just happened. She replied, that's true, Lord. This is one of the most courageous people in all of Scripture, right? I hope she's on your short list when you get to heaven, right? And there's going to be a lot, because I think a lot of people want to talk with her. How on earth did you maintain composure in the face of so many insults? She replied, "That's true, Lord, but even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath the master's table." Wow, Wow. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, "Your faith is great. Your request is granted." And her daughter was instantly healed. What was Jesus doing there? I'll tell you what I think he was doing. I think he was mirroring the racism. Of a society that he came to heal. And he wanted the disciples to see the ugliness of their own hearts by treating this woman the way that they all wanted to treat her. And he wanted to create and establish in Scripture an example of how ugly racism is and how much grace it takes for those who are affected by it to not be offended but to be a part of the healing of even the hearts of those who hate. Because Peter is one of the people that's here on this day saying, get rid of her, because God is trying to get him ready for the moment that Acts 15 is coming, where he's going to be a part of a decision that's going to change the world. And so Jesus wanted to draw it out, so he would be ready for his destiny. So he could be one of the courageous voices that would stand when the church was being birthed and say to the world, it's time that we become the people of God that he always intended us to be, that we will be different, we will be diverse, we will not be the same, and the pathway to get there is that we're going to have moral clarity and moral consistency so people will trust. You going to invite the worship team to come back. If ever there was a night for us to share in this table together, it was tonight. We do communion, we do the Lord's Supper together as a church family on the first Saturday of every month. And the, and the bread that's in these plates represents the body of Christ that was broken for you and me. And the juice that's in these trays and in these cups represents his blood that was shed and spilled for the forgiveness of sin. Now, there are a lot of reasons why God sent his son to die for the sins of the world, but can we just agree that one of them, one of them, was so that the church could find a pathway to unity together. And the only way that there's going to be unity in the body of Christ with moral clarity and moral consistency is if the people of God are willing to follow the example of Christ and die to self. We gotta die to self. We gotta be willing to sit down with people that might have beliefs and ideas that are different than ours and listen. I mean, really listen. With an expectation that we're gonna be heard as well because that's part of diversity in a community is a healthy, loving exchange of ideas if the death of christ if we only see it as a means to the heaven that waits for us in eternity and we don't see it also for what it is which is the power to bring some of that heaven to earth then we are demeaning and belittling the fullness of the sacrifice of jesus he came and he died for you and for me so that we could be forgiven but so we could also forgive so that we could receive grace but so we could also extend grace and through the gift of jesus god's son our savior when we make a vow of devotion to him we are born into the family of god and the spirit of god comes and begins to live inside of us and a lot of things happen through that which we've been talking about in this series but one of them can we just agree the mind of christ begins to form inside of us and can i just tell you one of the things that the mind of christ is for for moral clarity and moral consistency and it might be that you being here tonight when you take this bread and take this cup that you're going to have some jesus thoughts that you've never had before stand with me father i pray that as we step into this time of worship and intercession, as we hold this bread and hold this cup in our hand, that we're gonna feel the sacredness of this moment. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would inspire people to come and kneel at this altar, to make intercessions for this commonwealth, to make intercessions for our governor, to make intercessions for our legislators, to make intercessions for our local, Leaders, political leaders, to make intercession for this nation, for our president, for our Congress, for the Supreme Court, to make intercession for people that hold the power to make decisions that hold sway over us. But most of all, God, I pray that we would intercede for this church, for this house, for city life, that we would be a place that would not make it hard for other people to come in that moral clarity and moral consistency would define who we are all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, come on. Let's worship together as you feel free. You come.